If you have your Bible with you, open it up to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, and again in chapter 16, verse 19, we learned or we read that the city of Babylon had fallen. And we talked about this city of Babylon. We told, I told you that it's mentioned in the Bible several times. Actually, it's mentioned in the Bible 287 times. And I told you that it represents a couple of things. Number one, it represents an actual city of Babylon that existed. It also represents the Babylonian Empire that, or, or what that city represented. But it also has some spiritual representation as well. The city of Babylon represents the worldwide religion that will take place or will be implemented during the seven-year tribulation by the Antichrist. It also represents the worldwide or the one-world economy that will be that will be put in place by the Antichrist during this seven-year period of tribulation as well. So when we read Babylon in the Bible, we have to discern, is it the city of Babylon? Is it the, is it the, is it the nation of Babylon that was ruling and reigning a major world power at that time? Or is it speaking symbolically as a spiritual representation of the economy that the Antichrist will put in place? And there'll be a mark of the beast we read about in that economy. You'll, you'll have to take that mark in order to buy and to sell in that economy. And we also talked about the Antichrist coming on the scene during this tribulation and, and putting into place this political system, this worldwide government, if you will. And we can see that things are being set up for that now, can't we? With, with microchips and with, you know, we, we say we don't have one world economy, but it's, it's interesting how economically what happens in China affects the United States, what happens in Europe affects the United States, what happens in Greece affects our stock market. So we do have a connection. And as we see the, as we see the impact of our economy versus economies around the world, we can pretty well guess that we're, we're moving in that direction globally. We're, we're heading in that direction. Now, in Revelation chapter 17 and coming up in Revelation chapter 18, we're going to see the, see the detailed fall of Babylon, meaning the detailed fall, meaning we're going to get a little more description of what's going to take place of Babylon. In chapter 17, we're going to see the destruction of the one world religion that will have been implemented by the Antichrist. In chapter 18, we're going to see the destruction of the one world political system that will govern the earth during this tribulation period. Remember, where are Christians at during this time? The church has been raptured long ago, before this starts, but there are still people coming to Christ during this tribulation period. The doors to heaven are not closed, however, the cost to get there has become much greater because people, it's going to cost their lives. In order to reject the Antichrist, they're going to have to reject his religion and his political system or his economy and his government in place, which will cost them their lives. So the doors to heaven aren't closed, but they're, they're still open, but the cost is going to be much greater to get there. And people are easily influenced, and we live in a culture where people think, well, if everybody's doing it, it must be right. And that's exactly what's going to be taking place during that time. Everybody's going to be doing it, and it's going to be making sense to everybody. So both of these chapters, 17 and 18, and we're only going to look at 17 this morning, both of these chapters refer to the overall destruction of the kingdom of the Antichrist, which is referred to as Babylon. Okay? Let me give you a little bit of background on Babylon before we start. Babylon, if you're not familiar, it was an actual city that, that sat on the Euphrates River. It, it came out of the, remember the story of the Tower of Babel? That was Babylon. That's where it started. It, it, Genesis chapter 11 shows us that right after the flood, that Babylon was the seat of the civilization that was the first group or the first seat to actually ex, express hostility towards God. Remember why they built that tower? They wanted to get closer to the heavens. And it wasn't so they could get closer to God. It was so they could get closer to the stars. 
They were worshiping the stars. That's what came out of Babel. So what we have, essentially, when you look at the scriptures, you have the city of God, which is Jerusalem, and you have the city of Babel, or the city of rebellion, which is, which is the city of Babylon. And it represents the things of the world. It represents everything that comes against God, false religion, false worship. And if we can kind of keep those things in our minds straight, we'll understand this. Now, in the Old Testament, the name Babylon is associated with organized idolatry, blasphemy, and the persecution of God's people. Remember, it was Babylon, it was the Babylonian captivity that took the Israelites into captivity, that moved them out of Judah, the southern kingdom. They, they were taken over into Babylonian captivity. The concept of Babylon goes much beyond Revelation 17 and 18 and in the Antichrist reign. It goes back really from the beginning, of, beginning of, of Noah. Right after Noah's flood, Nimrod was the founder of Babylon, and he was Noah's, great grand, or, yeah, Noah's great-grandson. So it's not too many generations after Noah do we see Babel kind of coming into place. So just kind of, just simply put, Babylon is a picture of the world, a world which supports the worship of false gods and the rejection of the God of the Bible. So think of it as just, it's everything that comes against God is what it represents. Everything that comes against the God of the Bible, all right? Under the Antichrist, Babylon, in its both the religious and commercial aspects, will have influence over the earth as never before. We look around and we think worldliness is running rampant, don't we? Not like it's going to be then. Because remember, the Christians won't be here. There won't be anybody to stand against it. There won't be people to stop it. And if you do, you'll be martyred, which means you'll be killed for standing against what's taking place at that time. In chapter 17, John's given an invitation to look further into the destruction of this religious system. So let's pick up in chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. One of the angels who poured out one of these bowls of judgment comes to John and he says, hey, listen, come on, come with me. I'll show you the judgment of this great harlot to show John the effect of the judgments of the angel. In other words, the angel, I'm going to give you some more specific details in, one of the, in the effects of one of these judgments. Let me share a little bit more insight with you. Let me, let me open your eyes a little bit, John. Let me give you a little more clarity, if you will. But we, have, we, we see here in this, in this section, it's this harlot. She's described as a harlot who sits on many waters. Who, who is this harlot and, and why is she being judged? Those are two questions that we'll answer as we go through our study. The first one we'll look at is, who is this harlot? Who, who is this woman that, that John is referring to? And we see the, the symbolism of a woman in Revelation on three occasions. The first time we saw the symbolism of a woman, do you remember back in Revelation chapter 12? It was a woman giving birth to a child. And we said that woman represented the nation Israel. The child she was giving birth to represented the Messiah. We'll also see the symbol of a woman in Revelation 19 when we get there. The symbol of the woman in that case will be a bride in heaven that is making herself ready. It'll be a symbol of the church. But here in Revelation chapter 17, the woman who is this harlot, she represents this false religious system that will be later called Babylon in our, pa in our passage. It's, it's what's upon the earth. She's going to be represented four times in the book of Revelation, or four times actually in this passage. She's a harlot. She's a prostitute. What does that mean? It means she sells herself for money. It means she's, you know, harlotry in the Bible is a symbol for idolatry. 
Think about that. Harlotry or prostitution in the Bible is a symbol for idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of anything other than the one true living God. Okay? So harlotry is like idolatry. It's causing people to pull away from the one true living God and worship something other than the living God. The nation Israel was referred to as a harlot. They played the harlot, remember? When Israel turned their back on God, they walked away from God, the prophets of God underneath of the influence of God said Israel had played the harlot. They had left what they knew was true and what was right and had gone out prostituting themselves for false religions to go after the Canaanite religion when they came into the promised land. So they were described as playing the harlot. The harlot is a symbol of this false religious system that will be upon the world that is going to lead people away from the one true living God. And antichrist, the word antichrist means instead of Christ or in place of Christ. So there will be a system, a religious system that's going to come on the scene underneath the power of the antichrist It's going to lead people away from God and to this false religious system. And we're going to see as we continue to study that this this system is going to be destroyed. Now notice the description. It it, It says she sits on many waters. She sits on many waters. What does that mean? Well, if you'll just look over to verse 15, it'll tell you what it means. Because there's always a debate. Who's the harlot? Who is this? What does it look like? Well, it tells you right there what it looks like in verse 15. Then he said unto me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So the waters, because everyone wonders, is it oceans? What does it represent? And it represents simply this. People, lots of people, multitudes, nations means plural, many nations. Tongues means what? Language. It represents many language. So essentially, this harlot is sitting on a global community, a worldwide community. Very, very powerful. Now, many commentators at this point suggest this harlot, this false religious system, is none other than the Catholic Church. They think it's the Church of Thyatira, and now this is the Catholic Church that has become this harlot. Most of your Protestant uh, commentators believe that. I disagree. I disagree. And I'll tell you why I disagree. Because this religious system that's going to be set up during the time of this Antichrist is going to be much greater than the Catholic Church. It's going to be much larger than the Catholic Church. It's going to be much more global than the Catholic Church. Now remember something. The Catholic Church existing at this time in the tribulation will not be the same Catholic Church that exists today. Why? Because those believers within the Catholic Church will be taken out. What will be left, hot, left behind is an apostate church. No different than there'll be an apostate Protestant church. There'll be Baptists left behind. There'll be Presbyterians left behind. There'll be Catholics left behind. What's left behind will be those people who didn't believe in Jesus Christ who will now come together to form their own set of beliefs underneath of the direction of the Antichrist. So while it may have a picture or some influence from the Catholic Church, like many commentators suggest, and there's a lot of connections you can make, and it's actually really interesting if you want to go do that, it's also going to have an influence from many other Christian churches, because I'm convinced. You wonder and you look around, you look at how liberal Christianity is becoming, are we really saved? I don't mean us, I mean how far can we go away from the word of God and say, I'm still saved? How far, how far can we stretch what God says is this is wrong? And we go, well, it's not wrong today. It was just wrong back then. You see, I'm convinced that when we get to heaven, we're going to see people we didn't expect to see. And they're going to look at you and go, what are you doing here? And you're going to go, I don't know. What are you doing here? 
You see, getting to heaven isn't a condition of the church that I belong to. It's not about being Calvary Chapel. If you go to heaven and you go, Lord, I got a Reveal FM bumper sticker on my car, he's going to say, so? I went to Calvary Chapel, so? I went to the Baptist church, I went to the Presbyterian church, I went to, I don't care. Did you believe on me? Because that's the ticket to heaven. That's, have you given my, your life to me? That's what it is. So after the rapture takes place, we see this global religion forming. And who's forming it? All the people that weren't saved. Because everyone that's saved at this point is taken up. So we can't sit here today and go, I think it's the Catholic Church. I think it's the Lutheran Church. I think it's that church. We don't have any idea. It's going to have an implication. It's going to look like many different churches. That's what false religion does. There, there's a sense of truth in everything that's false. Otherwise, you would never buy any of it. But the fact that there's a little bit of truth there, if there's a little bit of familiarity, if there's a little bit of something that I like, I'll take it. And that's what's going to take place. So while it may have these influences, it's not going to be totally, totally, I don't believe it's the Catholic Church like many commentators say. I believe it might include part of the Catholic Church as well as the Protestant Church, but it will be the parts that are left behind after the rapture of the church. You see, people have spent hours years, decades, and lifetimes discussing this chapter in the Bible and trying to figure out who it is and what it is. And, how. and, and you know, we'll, we'll, at the end, you have to go, well, I don't really care because I'm not going to be here, number one. And number two, Jesus wins. So it really doesn't matter who it is, but it's, it, it's, it's something good to know and it's something good to talk about. Now look at verse two. Some more description of this harlot with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The kings are the rulers, the inhabitants are those people underneath the kings. The inhabitants of the earth committed fornication against God by not worshiping God and they became a part of this one world religious system that God views as a harlot. I wonder what he would say to churches today that aren't following the scripture. I think he would view them the same way. I think it would be the same thing. If he was willing to call the nation Israel, they've played the harlot, I think he could call churches that today as well. You see, but these inhabitants, notice they were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. They were intoxicated by the wine. They were under the influence. You've all at some point probably had alcohol in your life, and what does it do? You can get drunk with it. You can become under the influence. You can become intoxicated with it. That's exactly what's taking place. People are looking at this going, I want more of that. I like that church. I want to be a part of that church. And it's literally affected nations, tongues, multitudes of people. To be drunk means to be intoxicated. It means you're not thinking clearly. You're being deceived. You're not acting rationally. It's impairing your judgment. Literally saying they're being deceived. Now John gives, now John's given an even greater description. Look at verse 3. So he carried me away. In the spirit, this is the angel carrying John away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. On her forehead a name was written, Mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. 
the angel takes John into the wilderness. He takes him away, a desolate place where John sees a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, we saw this exact same beast, same description, seven heads and ten horns. And we clearly identified this beast as the Antichrist. The Antichrist, that's who this beast is. Seven heads are the rulers that will join with the Antichrist. The ten horns refers to the ten-nation confederacy, the ten nations out of the European confederacy that will be part of this one-world system. But notice her position. She's riding on the beast. This, This harlot is representing this world religion that is now riding on the Antichrist. So what we see is her position of riding on the beast indicates that on one hand, She's supported by the political power of the beast. On the other hand, she has a a more dominant role, at least outwardly appears to be controlling the beast. So what's taking place here is by by her position of being on top of the beast, it looks like she's controlling the beast. She's riding the beast. If you were riding a horse, you tell the horse where to go, hopefully, if it's a good horse. So it looks like she has the ability to control this beast, and that's what it appears to be at this point. And notice she has some things on her forehead. She has a name written on her forehead. In the Roman culture of that day, it was common for prostitutes to wear a headband with their names on it. Interestingly enough, the woman who represents this false religion is sitting upon this beast who sets up this false political system. So it appears as though the religion of the world is directing the government of the world, but that's not the case at all, as we'll come to find out. In fact, they're going to be working together. This false religious system will be directing the one world government for a period of time until the the, the harlot is going to be destroyed later at the end of the chapter. Now, notice that John makes note of what she's wearing in verse 4. She was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. She's arrayed. She's wearing purple, scarlet, gold, precious stones and pearls. What does that represent? Wealth, royalty. It's it's fine apparel. It's power. It's prosperous. This religious system will be a wealthy system. It'll be a prosperous system. It'll be one that you look at and go, wow, they've got it all together. Money is abounding. Money is not a problem. But remember, in spite of all her glamour, no matter how beautiful she looks, she's still a prostitute. She's still a harlot. It will be a prosperous religion. There's a stark contrast between the previous woman that we saw in Revelation chapter 12. That woman represented God's people, the nation Israel. Remember what she was wearing? She was clothed with the sun. She was literally wearing the things of God. This woman, this woman in Revelation chapter 17, she's wearing the things of the world. Scarlet, wealth, Precious stones, pearls, gold. And then she wears in her hand, or she has in her hand, a golden cup. And inside the golden cup, it's filled with the filthiness of her fornication. And she's passing it around, letting people drink out of it. The things she is engaged in, or as some translations put it, the fornication of the earth. So she's literally drawing people into sin. This is a religion that will actually bring people into sin. That wouldn't be very hard, would it? Because most people enjoy sin, because sin is fun for a season. But we know it ultimately leads to death. But notice her name. There's actually two names given there. The first name that's given there, in verse 5, on her forehead a name was written. Remember that Roman culture, the harlot would wear her name on a headband. 
On her forehead, there's a first name that's given. It's called mystery. Mystery. When it comes to mystery in the Bible, do you remember what the word mystery means? It's not like we would use it here in, in our language. If I say to you, it's a mystery, you think, I don't know the answer to it. I don't have an answer for it. It's, it's, I'm reading, it's a mystery. I, I have no solution. There is no answer. But in the Greek, that word for mystery doesn't mean that. It's a truth that is now known that would be unknown unless it was revealed to you. So the word mystery, anytime you come across it in the New Testament, it refers to something that has been revealed. When Paul says he speaks of a mystery, it means I didn't know this, but it has now been revealed to me. And there's no way of knowing this unless it's been revealed to you. What's the mystery? That she's the world, that she's the world religious system. Who she really is is a mystery. It is being revealed. The second name she has is Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. We've talked about Babel. We've talked about Babylon. Babylon the Great, it's simply the religious system that represents the Babylon of old, the old nation Babylon historically, stretching all the way back to the Tower of Babel and including the Babylonian Empire spoken of by Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire, all the way back. Remember, I, I mentioned it briefly. Babel is where Nimrod, Noah's grandson, rebelled against God and founded the city of Babel. They made the Tower of Babel there to reach the heavens. Why did they want to get to the heavens? Not to be closer to God, but to worship the stars. Notice it also calls her the mother of harlots. The mother of harlots. She's not just a harlot. This woman, this system, this false religious system is now called the mother of harlots. And it suggests that she, or Babylon, has given birth to all of the other false religions of the world beginning back at Babel. So God is revealing to us that this is where it all started. Way back at the Tower of Babel, after Noah, Noah's great-grandson Nimrod got together, settled a place in the city called Babel, formed a, a civilization. They began to worship false gods. That's where it all leads back to. That's what, that's what that means. And look at verse 6 and find out why she's being judged. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The woman is, this religious system was drunk with the blood of believers. What does that mean? That means she's enjoying killing Christians. She's enjoying, it's intoxicating for this system to watch those people that are standing for Christ be killed. It's in persecution has become intoxicating. It's like a drink. It's drawing them like alcohol or like a drug would. They're, they're excited about it. And we see the apostle John is doing what? He's marveling. Wow. Wow. Why is John marveling? Why is he, it says he marvels with great amazement? Why did he marvel? Certainly John was familiar with persecution, right? Certainly in his day, we, he saw persecution. All the apostles, with the exception of himself, were killed for their faith according to church history. So why is he marveling? Because... He was amazed and marveled because this wasn't pagan persecution. This wasn't pagan persecution such as he knew in his day, but religious error in persecution. This is a pseudo-church thirsty for the blood of the saints. False religion is always the worst enemy of true religion. Why he was marveling is because he was watching what was looking like a church and a religion then killing Christians or killing the saints. We should never forget that some of the most vicious persecution conducted against true Christians has been done in the name of the church, in the name of God. And that's why John's marveling. You see, he would expect persecution from the Roman government. He would expect that. What he wouldn't expect is persecution 
from a religious entity or from a church or a, a worldwide religious system that's set up. That's why I believe that he's marveling. Well, the angel wants to clear things up a bit for John. So he says in verse 7, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is, here is the mind which has wisdom, the seven heads and seven, or seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself, also to the eighth, and is of the seven, going to the per- going, seven and is going to perdition. Ten horns which you saw are the ten kings. You have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as king. Now, you know what John's thinking right now? Now, that really clears things up, doesn't it? I mean, don't you understand it so much better now? I mean, you read those verses and you scratch your head and go, what are you? T- what, you were going to clear things up for me. You did, what is all this stuff? So when I come across the passage of scripture like that, I kind of like you scratch my head and go, what is he talking about? So the first thing I do is when I don't know what to do is I go to the commentators, see what they have to say about it. And here's what you find. You go to the commentators and you find this one that you like over here and he says this. And you go to this one over here and he says something completely different. And you go to this one over here and he says something yet different again. And you come to this one and he says something completely different. Then you come to the dreaded phrase. This is one of the most difficult passages in scriptures to explain. (laughs) You go, great. Now I got to teach it on Sunday. Well, when it comes to situations like this, let me try to explain and simplify it for you. Let's just focus on what we do know and what, we can, what we're sure of. Here's what we know. The beast is the Antichrist, and he gets his power from Satan. At some point, the beast, we learn, will receive some sort of mortal wound, possibly an assassination attempt. An attempt. He will die and then rise again. We also know that those who embrace him and his system and worship him are not written in the book of life. And when it comes to these seven heads and seven mountains on which the woman sits, some people believe that this is referring to Rome because Rome is known as the city of seven hills. Okay, Uh, There's a problem with that because Rome sits on seven hills and the Greek word here for is not hills, it's mountains. And there's two different words that could have been used, and, they, and, and John chose to use the word mountain here. But some people say that it, it, this is referring to the city of Rome, which, which certainly could be because Rome has been the center or the center of religion or culture um, for, for a long time. So that's certainly a possibility. Some people, again, think this is one of the reasons that, that this beast or this, this, I'm sorry, this woman is linked to Roman Catholicism because of this. But like I said, the, the, the issue there is while Rome is a city on seven hills, it's not a city on seven mountains. Is it a possible mistake? Could be. Don't really know. Some, now when it comes to the seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and, other, and, and the other is not yet come. Some suggest this refers to the Roman emperors that were alive in John's day. In other words, that John had, there was, there was uh, seven, there, five had fallen, there was five previous Roman empires, one is, which means there's a Roman, it would be Domitian that was ruling at the time of John, and then there was one more yet to come. Problem is, there was more than five prior to that. So there's, there's, there's a problem there. Others suggest that this, this seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and one is not yet to come. Others suggest it speaks of world empires. 
You know, starting back with Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Grecian Empire. One is, which was the Roman Empire, the one that is to come will be the empire, the future resurrected Roman Empire. That could be. And again, you come to me, well, what do you think it is, Rob? I don't really know. I don't really care, to be honest with you. It doesn't really make a difference to me. It doesn't affect my my walk with the Lord. Here's what I know. Jesus wins. So whether we understand this or completely or how we're able to clear this all up, we can, here's what I do know, is you can get really smart people in a room and they'll argue about this all day. They'll argue about, you know, and, and I also know that depending on what position that you want to support, you can find different things out there to support it. But in the end, while we need to have a basic understanding of this, because I think God put it in the Bible for a reason, what we need to understand is the overview perspective. If you are the type of person that want to get in there and study every little detail, I encourage you to. Do it. Encourage you with an open mind to seek the Lord. But if you're like me, you look at this and go, okay, one is, one is to come. That's about as clear as muddy water. I don't know who the angel was. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. You know? But one other thing, when it comes to the ten horns, we know who those are. The ten kings of the nations, that's the European nation. They haven't received their authority, or they haven't received their kingdom yet. They'll receive their authority for an hour. And uh, we know they're of one mind in verse 13, and they'll give their power and their authority over to the beast. And they will all be gathering for one purpose. As the, as, the, as, the, as the earth as we know it begins to wind down, they're gathering to make war with God. Whether they realize it or not, you have to understand that as this whole thing is unfolding, who's behind it? Satan's behind it. Does Satan have the ability to influence man, men today? You better believe it. You absolutely don't think men are as smart as they think they are. When you see some of the plots and the plans of, that are put in places and governments around the world, you better believe that Satan's in, in, in power and influencing people. He's the one behind it. And look at verse 14. This tells us why. Make, these will make war with the Lamb. The Lamb will overcome them. Praise the Lord. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are, who are with him are called chosen and faithful. We'll see that. That's going to be us. We're the ones that are with him. We're the ones that are going to be chosen and faithful. We're going to learn in future chapter as Jesus comes back to earth to make war with them, we're going to be with them riding on white horses. That's the saints. That's the church. That's the bride of Christ that's coming back with him. This final battle will take place known as the battle of Armageddon. It'll take place in the valley of Jezreel at Megiddo. The, the, the scripture has been clear about this. And we'll see that in chapter 19. It's us that come back for him. He's going to speak a word. There will be no battle, but there will be bloodshed. But there will be no battle. But our scripture continues here. Look at verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. We covered that. And the ten horns which you saw of the beast, these will be These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Remember what the harlot represents, the religious system. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw in that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. The woman, this religious system, who was initially riding on the beast, seemingly supported or even controlling this political system, has the appearance of that. At some point, these ten kings or these ten nations are going to turn against this religious system. We know that because that's the point where the Antichrist is going to stand in the temple that will be rebuilt for Israel and declare what? 
that he is God and demand that he be worshipped. You see, up until that point, I believe the religious system will be like any other religious system, or, or so we would see today. They're going to be talking, you know, have you noticed that every religious has a God? Every religion has a God. And they always talk about God like it's the same God, you know, the God of the, God of the Muslims or the God of, it's not the same God. The God of the Bible is not the same God. We do not worship. Just because something or somebody is called God, it doesn't mean they are God. It doesn't mean they're still alive, they're still living, they're still, you know, it's not the same thing. So what we see is at some point these ten kings are going to turn against this religious system and it's rather descriptive here. They're going to hate the religion, they're going to make her desolate and naked, they're going to eat her flesh and burn her with fire, but it is comforting to know that God is in control. Because notice what it says, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind. And to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. You see, God is the one really in control. God's plan is the one really playing out. Satan's plan, the beast's plan, the antichrist plan, they just want to take as many people with them as possible. They want to pull people away from God. And how do they do it? Deception. They're deceived. They want to pull as many people away from the truth that they can, and they're going to do it by deceiving people, by deceiving us. Do you know that you can be deceived by a good speaker? Do you ever listen to somebody go, man, that point makes sense? Two, have you, ever, you ever had a chance to watch a criminal trial? And you have two good attorneys going at it, and one guy, the, the prosecutor, his case really makes sense. All of a sudden, the defense attorney comes up, and you look at his case to go, well, he's got some good points too. And if they're a good speaker, they can deceive you. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul warned Timothy about it. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Well, how do we keep from being deceived? How do you know that I'm not deceiving you this morning? How do you know I didn't just make all this up? How do, how, do, how do we know that anybody, you can watch somebody on TV, you can go to another church and hear another pastor. How do you know if you're being deceived? The first thing you need to do to keep yourself from being deceived is read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read it. Get in there. From beginning to end. If you're a Christian, read the Bible. You don't have to understand everything, but read it. Go through it. Beginning to end. Your daily reading plan or weekly reading plan or whatever you do, get in there and just read. Read it. Just go from cover to cover. Read it through. Well, then you need to, the second thing you need to do is know the Bible. I got to know what it says. You see, if I know what the Bible says, when somebody says something contrary to what the Bible says, what's going to happen? That doesn't sound right. I might not even know why it doesn't sound right. I just know it doesn't sound right. I'm going to think, well, I remember when I read back in Exodus, that doesn't make sense. Or I read what Paul said to the Ephesians, and and what you said doesn't make sense. We're told to be like the Bereans and search the Scriptures. When I tell you something in the Scripture, I just read from 2 Timothy 3, verse 4, if you don't believe it's true, go look it up. Don't just take my word for it. I I don't want you just to listen to me go, oh, he must know it. No, study it for yourself. Because I tell you this, it's my desire to seek truth, and if you can show me where I'm wrong... In the Bible, not what somebody's opinion is, I'll change what I believe every time, every time, all day long. Because this is my standard of truth. This is what I want to know. 
So we have to read the Bible, but then we also have to know the Bible, right? I can read something without really knowing it, can't I? You know, try reading the Bible at night before you go to bed and then wake up and think about what you read in the morning. It doesn't work that way. I have to read the Bible. I have to know the Bible. I have to hide the scripture in my heart, don't I? But the third thing I need to do is live the Bible. You see, I can read it. I can know it. But if I'm not living it, it's just something on my mind that's just, it's not, it really doesn't have the same impact on me. I have to read it. I have to know it. I have to make a decision to live it. When we live the Bible, we allow the Bible to change us. You see, you might look at Revelation and go, you know what? I could care less. All I know is he said I'm out of here from chapter four on doesn't mean a thing to me. It's okay. Read it. Understand it. Know it. Know what it says because you're going to run across somebody. You ever read a scripture in the morning and that day as the Lord brings somebody across your path? And you go, I just read that this morning. That's not an accident. The more we put in, the more he's going to pull out. We need to read it. We need to know it. We need to live it. And then, like I just said, you need to share it. Share it. Be available to share the scriptures with somebody because that's what's going to encourage somebody. When it comes to things like my mom, when it comes to things like Vicki and Dave, can you share? People say, I don't know what to say. Share the truths of God's word. God is good. God is faithful. Go to the Psalms and say, this is what the Bible says about God. We don't know why you're suffering. We don't know why it's hard. We don't know why you got this lot in life. But we do know these things about God. Don't ever focus on what you don't know. Focus on what you do know. Because if I know these truths about God, I can get through anything. I don't have to know why it's happening if I know who God is. I can look to God and say, God, I don't know why, but I know who. I understand who's leading this or who's allowing this for some reason. Again, please don't blame anything, you know, anything like cancer on God. And don't say, well, that's what God wants for me. No, that's sinful. God's in the process of redeeming mankind. God doesn't want illness for us, but God will allow it for a reason or a purpose which we may or may not know in our life. But it doesn't mean we stop praising him. And it doesn't mean we think all of a sudden his plan is no good. Because always remember, his plan is for eternity. And he never promised us comfort on this earth. Every one of his apostles, with the exception of John, according to church history, were martyred for their faith. He suffered. We will suffer too. But we must continue to walk. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, spent a lot of his life in prison. A lot of his life beaten. A lot of his life being cast out. A lot of his life being rejected. But he persevered. And when he says, finish the race, that's what he tells us to do as well. Finish the race. We don't know how our life will look tomorrow or next week. But we know that our God will remain constant. And we know that he's still worthy of praise. And we know if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, where we're going to be on that day. You see, if I know where I'm going, the road might get bumpy to get there, but I know where the destination is. And that's where our focus is, is on eternity, not on the situation. Try not to let your physical situation, your physical health affect your spiritual health. Because I can be strong and you can be strong spiritually and be sick physically. Don't look to your physical health in a fallen world for a picture of God. Look to the scriptures. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, as we study these end times and these difficult scriptures and this system that will rise up, Lord, we see it so clearly and we think that it would be so easy to recognize. But the truth is, mankind will be deceived, Lord. Christians will be gone. Your spirit will be working in a different way. Lord, I just thank you that you revealed the truth to us this morning.
I thank you that this time has not yet come. And Lord, I just pray for each of us here. If we are sick, Lord, healing is what we desire. But we also know you're greater than that. I pray that we would take your word and it would impact our life, Lord, that it wouldn't just be a book that we pick up on Sunday. It would be a book that we read, we live by, we obey, and we share with others. For the truths about you are true no matter what situation we're in. Father, you are holy, you're merciful, and you're gracious. I know that because your word tells me. In Jesus' name, amen.